Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Today, Rudy Giuliani finally got a taste of accountability. Jurors in the defamation case against Giuliani awarded former Fulton County election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss a staggering $148 million in damages for the lies Mr. Giuliani spread about them. Giuliani has already said he will appeal the ruling, and we will get some expert help on what that means for this case in just a second. But throughout this trial, we have learned so much more about what exactly happened here. Most of what we understood about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss' story before this trial was about the lies Giuliani and Trump pushed about these two women and the threats that followed. And what we learned through the trial was how much those threats actually impacted their lives. Here was Ruby Freeman outside the court after today's verdict. I want people to understand this. Money will never solve all of my problems. I can never move back into the house that I called home. I will always have to be careful about where I go and who I choose to share my name with. I miss my home. I miss my neighbors. And I miss my name. Today we got the transcript of Shea Moss's testimony from this trial, and it is filled with previously untold and heartbreaking stories. I mean, for one thing, Ms. Moss claimed that Mr. Giuliani's lies ruined her career. Moss had worked for Fulton County's election system for a decade. When she got the job she had, uh, when she got the job she had during the 2020 election, she said she was so excited, she literally dropped to her knees and cried in front of everyone. And when she was asked why she loved that job so much, Moss replied that she knew it would make her grandmother proud. Growing up all her life, hearing stories about how, as a black woman, a lot of the women before her and her family did not have that right. And for Moss, this wasn't just about her ideals in the abstract. It was a way to further those ideals in a real, tangible way. Ms. Moss worked specifically with absentee voters, and here's how she described that work. The second thing I liked about my job is the absentee, the mail-in ballots. It's for the elderly, the disabled, people living permanently overseas, the military overseas, people away at college, basically anyone unable to come to the polls. I really enjoyed helping them exercise that right when they were in a position feeling like they won't be able to vote because they can't make it. And I like coming through for them and helping them. But Rudy Giuliani's lies made Shea Moss a pariah at work. She had panic attacks. She broke down crying in the bathroom. So she tried to find another job. And she heard of an opening at Chick-fil-A, fast food chain. The salary was lower, but it would be an escape from her nightmare. And she mentally prepared herself to work her way up from the bottom. She said she could make fries or she could work the cash register. 
At the end of her job interview for that position, this happened. The guy interviewing me turned his laptop around and showed me an article of me, my face, plastered on it. Fraud in big letters. And the video that's been going around. And he was like, well, you know, in the last question, tell me about this. Is this you? Is this true? Moss was so embarrassed, she just left the interview. Rudy Giuliani's lies impacted Moss's family as well. Her 14-year-old son was in remote schooling when this all happened because of the pandemic. Moss couldn't afford Wi-Fi, so her son used an old cell phone of hers as a hotspot. But then, conspiracy theorists found that phone's number. They constantly called him. They constantly messaged. It would knock him out of the class, and the teacher wouldn't let you back in. You know, you can't keep coming out, in and out, in and out on the Zoom. Her 14-year-old son was bombarded with messages that used the N-word or said his mother would be hanged. A child who had been getting good grades started failing every class that year. When Shay Moss was asked in court what she was most afraid of, she replied, I am most scared of my son finding me or my mom hanging in front of our house in a tree. Despite the clear and profound damage, that Giuliani has continued to lie about Ruby Freeman and Shamos. He's continuing to lie about them even tonight. He says he will show that the two women are the liars and that he is the one telling the truth when it comes time for his appeal. Giuliani claims he has evidence that, again, he cannot show us just yet. Where I've not been allowed to offer one single piece of evidence in defense of which I have a lot. So I am quite confident when this case gets before a fair tribunal, it'll be reversed so quickly, it'll make your head spin. Clear, this is still not over for Rudy Giuliani, but it is not over for Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss either. Today is not the end of the road. We still have work to do. Rudy Giuliani was not the only one who spread lies about us. And others must be held accountable, too. When Dominion Voting Machines sued Fox News for defamation over its role in pushing the big lie, Fox ended up setting, settling for $787 million. And now Rudy Giuliani is on the hook for $148 million. That means spreading the lie that Donald Trump somehow secretly won the 2020 election has cost the people pushing that lie nearly a billion dollars. And just as Ruby Freeman said, there is still a lot more ahead. Joining me now is John Langford, one of the attorneys representing Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. He also serves as counsel at the nonprofit legal, legal center Protect Democracy. John, thank you for joining me tonight. Um, and congratulations to you and your clients for getting some measure of accountability here. Uh, I just wonder, since you are you know, intimately involved in the proceedings and all this, whether you can tell us what Ms. Moss and um, Ms. Freeman's reaction was to the, the number um, assigned to the damages by the jury here, nearly $150 million. Well, thank you for having me tonight. Um, you know, I can tell you their, their reaction to the verdict. Uh, Ms. Moss Shea told me tonight justice was served. And she said, you know, people finally had a chance to hear me tell my story. And Ms. Freeman, Ruby said, 
and they listened. Um, so setting aside the number for a moment, this was an incredible moment for uh, Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss. I think actually one of the most moving parts of the trial being there was when we played the deposition videos of the Georgia investigators who actually investigated these claims and did all of the things that Giuliani did not do, talked to witnesses, reviewed the evidence. And they went through line by line and said, there is no truth to any of this. And in hearing them say that in a court, uh, Ms. Moss teared up. And then she was beaming, and she was beaming because the truth is established. It is out there, finally. As for the number, if you know Ruby and Shay, you know that they are true um, heroes. And they came into this seeking justice, but not assuming anything, because that's not the kind of um, people that they are. And so I think they are vindicated tonight is the word I would use and proud of the verdict that finally, after so long, establishes that Mr. Giuliani has been lying this entire time. Yeah. And I don't want to diminish that because that's something that can never be taken away from them again. Right. Which is the the belief in their stories, the, the fact that they are telling the truth. Um, but I do want to ask because, you know, we are aware, at least on the outside of reporting, that Rudy Giuliani is in pretty significant financial straits. And I think when a lot of folks heard this number, they thought, well, are Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss going to get any of that money in, in reality? I mean, what is the likelihood of that, given the fact that really Rudy Giuliani is being sued by his own lawyers, his ex-wife, he has his apartment on the market? Uh, it doesn't seem like, at least on the outside, that he has any of those millions of dollars? Well, the verdict is in on what he owes Ruby and Shay, but the jury is out on what he has. And we specifically asked for all information that would show us what his financial status looks like. And guess who didn't produce basically any of that information? Rudy Giuliani. Um, so I would say that um, we have a very talented team. My colleagues at uh, the law firm Wilkie um, Farr and at DuBose Miller, who are going to work diligently to track down every asset that he has and work to ensure that what he has rightly goes to Ruby and Shay for what he owes them. Do you do you think Mr. Giuliani is going to have to post a sizable bond to stay the execution of this agreement? That's a great question. And the answer is um, it normally that is exactly what has to happen. And uh, I, there we will see whether that is something that is uh, that, that he intends to do. Um, we intend to move as expeditiously as possible, um, including to uh, get the court to, to, to uh, weigh the automatic stay of execution so that we can start enforcement proceedings immediately. And do you, finally, just do you, do you see any chance Rudy Giuliani is saying this is all going to be turned over on appeal? Do you think there's any validity to that? No, uh, is the short answer. Um, he has, <laughs> throughout this case, he's offered the defense that this was his opinion. Well, it's not an opinion when you offer facts. It's also, even if it is an opinion, you say you have facts that you don't produce, um, you don't get the opinion defense. Um, he said the civil cons he, he has a set of arguments that he has raised over and over again that have absolutely no merit. And I think the underlying point here is this. Today is a real 
moment of hope because what it shows is that while you have people like Rudy Giuliani who go out in the street out in front of the courthouse or on their web shows late at night and say whatever they want, when you come into a court of law, you have to have facts, you have to have evidence, and the truth matters. And the system today worked. A jury of Mr. Giuliani's peers looked at him and judged him liable to the tune of nearly $150 million to the heroes who are Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. John Langford, it's a big day for you, big day for justice, big day for accountability. Thank you so much for your time, sir. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Now I'd like to turn to Maya Wiley, former federal prosecutor and the president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Maya, I, I just can't get over the fact that the big lie itself was directed at American democracy, but really specifically directed to disenfranchise people of color and their votes in big urban centers across the United States. And two of the women who were in the crosshairs of that disenfranchisement have gone to court and won. And I wonder what you think this means for the systematic effort to disenfranchise people of color, women of color. Look, I don't think there's anything more important than getting this vindication in this jury case, uh, civil case. But see, remember that not only were they public servants, nonpartisan public servants, just making sure people's ballots got collected and counted. The central point of our democracy in a state where so many black people are facing challenges by the state itself to make it harder for them to vote. And yet here they were just doing a job. And remember part of what Rudy Giuliani does here uh, and the Trump campaign and Donald Trump himself is they use racist stereotypes about them as black women. They called them, Rudy Giuliani called them drug dealers, hustlers. None of that has to do with election fraud, by the way, as language. It was specifically racist stereotypes. And 80% of poll workers are women, Mm -hmm. much more likely to be subject to violence and violent threats. This was so important to say not only, not only do black people, black women, have a right to participate in every aspect of our democracy, including being public servants. It sends a message to everyone who tries to do election administration because we know that these big lies, these threats of violence, has meant one in three neutral public servant election administrators are fearful for their lives and for their families because of threats. 11% have quit. It's a direct attack on our ability even just to run an election. So every time we get a victory in a case like this that says, no, you can't, no, you won't, and you will pay the price, it matters. Yeah, it, it matters a lot. It actually matters so much more than the actual money itself. The victory is the thing. And it leads me to sort of the broader context of all of this, which is, you know, Donald Trump claims racism from the prosecutors who are trying to hold him accountable. Many of them, if not all of them, are people of color, whether it's Tish James, Alvin Bragg, Fonnie Willis. It is an extraordinary moment in American life that the sort of racial subtext comes so fully, flowers so fully in the American public life, where Donald Trump is calling these people racist when, in fact, 
based on history, based on language, based on reality, we know the inverse is most likely true, right? That the racist is one that is actually getting held accountable here. I wonder what you think this does in terms of the contours of um, the broader fight and whether this dims the enthusiasm for the big lie, whether this chill, whether this acts as a deterrent to those who would further propagate it. Look, I think we have to do a lot more to deter the big lie. I do think it matters, though, because every time we exact a cost for threatening our system, for using racism to undermine it, for attacking human beings who have every right just to live their lives free, safe, able to do their jobs, work, support their families. Every time that happens and we get a defamation case like Dominion data systems, right? Holding Fox News accountable, same kinds of lies, even when they didn't believe them and knew they were lies. All those things matter to protect democracy. Every time there's a cost to directly trying to undermine it, knowing you're undermining it. And let me just add this one other point, because I think it's so important. If we don't take care of this social media platform or platforms that are intentionally and knowingly spreading lies that we have documented proof lead to violent acts, we may see a lot more violence in the election cycle. So we do have to hold folks accountable. And that includes a social media platform. Well, yeah, it, it, it sort of undermines the progress we're making on accountability when the lies continue unabated. Maya Wiley, there's, there's, this is, this is one of those decisions that I feel like the after effects, the legs it has are, are long, right? Yeah. This is up there with the January, holding January 6 rioters accountable. This is up there with the potential of holding Trump accountable in the federal case. Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss are avatars for a justice that's long overdue. Yeah. Thank you as always, Maya. It's great to see you. Good to see you. Coming up, Donald Trump is already facing 40 counts of mishandling classified documents. And today we learned that a binder filled with highly classified information relating to the Russia investigation just disappeared in the final days of the Trump administration. And it has yet to be found. That's next. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. At the end of every year, Congress rushes through a bill to fund the U.S. military, the defense budget. There's never much fanfare around its passage, but the defense budget is considered a must-pass bill. So it's the perfect vehicle for members of Congress to hide Easter eggs, important policy that they don't want to get a lot of attention. This year, one of those Easter eggs came in the form of a bipartisan amendment 
from Senators Tim Kaine and Marco Rubio. That amendment would bar any president from unilaterally pulling the United States out of the NATO alliance. Okay, in the 74 years since NATO was founded, there has only been one American president who toyed with the idea of pulling out of that alliance. His name is Donald Trump. NATO's primary function is, of course, to counter Russian aggression in Europe. And Trump's close relationship with Vladimir Putin apparently made NATO a target for Trump. Trump repeatedly talked about pulling out of NATO during his presidency, according to multiple reports. And there is good reason to believe he would follow through on that if he's elected to a second term. In fact, Trump's campaign website includes a cryptic promise to finish the process we began under my administration of fundamentally reevaluating NATO's purpose and NATO's mission. And now, as of today, Congress has quietly made that goal all but impossible for Donald Trump or anyone else. Apparently, even Republicans in Congress understand that Trump is a loose cannon when it comes to national security in Russia. And there is some brand new reporting today that really highlights this reality. Today, CNN was the first to report that in the final days of the Trump administration, a binder containing highly classified documents relating to Russia's election interference, that binder mysteriously went missing and remains missing to this day. The missing binder is reportedly 10 inches thick and includes raw intelligence that the U.S. and its NATO allies collected on Russians and Russian agents. It was essentially a treasure trove of information relating to the crossfire hurricane investigation into Russian collusion. Now, in his final days in office, Trump was pushing to have all of that intelligence declassified, believing that it would somehow vindicate his claims that the Russia investigation was all a deep state hoax. Former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson wrote in her book that during the final hours of the Trump administration, one copy of that binder was given to the right-wing political pundit John Solomon. And when it was discovered that still highly classified intelligence had ended up in the hands of a journalist who had no clearance to see it, a Secret Service agent was then dispatched to retrieve it. That agent returned later clutching a Whole Foods brown grocery bag full of loose documents. Cassidy Hutchinson also told the January 6th committee that on the final night of the Trump administration, January 19th, 2020, she saw White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows depart the White House with the, quote, original crossfire hurricane binder tucked under his arm. Now, a lawyer for Mr. Meadows strenuously denies he mishandled any classified documents. But how concerned should we be knowing that this binder filled with key intelligence about Russian interference has gone missing? I'm about to ask one of the very few people on Earth who is intimately familiar with that intelligence, former FBI Special Agent Peter Strzok. He joins me. Coming up next. He then described Mr. Meadows at 11.45 a.m. on Inauguration Day, asking the Secret Service how quickly they can get to the Justice Department because he wants to try to declassify something literally in the last 15 minutes when Donald Trump is president. What was that about? What was he trying to do? That specific binder was pertinent, pertinent to Crossfire Hurricane. Do we want to put people back in power that have mishandled and have been showed to mishandle the most sensitive national security secrets that our nation has. 
you know, that's the question that we need to ask ourselves. That was former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson telling my colleague Rachel Maddow that 15 minutes before President Biden was sworn in, Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, was rushing to declassify a key key intelligence about the Russia investigation. And today we have new reports detailing that the intelligence community has been searching for a missing binder of classified intelligence on that very same subject. Joining me now is former FBI special agent Peter Strzok, who helped launch the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. Um, Peter, I know you can't talk about what's in the 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 this 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 binder, but I do wonder if you can get us give us a sense of the gravity of the secrets that are enclosed within it. Yeah, absolutely. So I've seen most, if not all, of this uh, intelligence reporting. The first thing to realize, I think we're doing a little bit of a disservice when we call this a binder. I mean, we're talking 10 inches of material. When you go to the store to pick up some paper for your printer or ream of paper, it's about two and a half inches tall, and that's 500 pages, or yeah, 500 pages. So if you add up four of those, we're talking around 2,000 pages of information. This isn't a couple of documents. This isn't two dozen pages. This is more than a thousand easily. And within it, The potential loss of this was so grave that the intelligence community determined that they needed to go to the Senate Intelligence uh, Committee and brief them on the potential loss of this information and its impact on sensitive sources and methods. And that when the Senate wanted to review it, they had to go to a special room at the CIA out at Langley in Virginia. So I can't overstate how extraordinarily sensitive some of this material is. It goes to human sources, potentially uh, individual uh, you know, sources that the CIA and others have recruited overseas. And the question is, where did this go? And as a result, what does the U.S. government have to do? If there is a source in place that's been recruited, does the CIA or others have to go and exfiltrate them from wherever they happen to be living? The amount of damage that is potentially caused by this binder that just disappeared, this 10 inches of thousands of pages of material, is just devastating. And the fact that the, the community was briefing the Senate last year years after Trump left the Oval Office and nobody knows where it is, is just a damning indictment. Yeah, and the reporting suggests, I mean, we, we given what transpired apparently down at Mar-a-Lago, we are not led to believe that Donald Trump really placed cl- classified information um, high on his list of priorities in terms of keeping it safe and secure. And yet this is the way they treated this stack of information was so cavalier as to be mind boggling. I'll just read an excerpt. The House, right? The House has to jump through hoops just to get a look at this thing. House Republicans cut a deal with the CIA in which the committee brought in a safe for its documents that was then placed inside a CIA vault, a setup that prompted some officials to characterize it as a turducken. Or a safe within a safe. A turducken, for those who have not had the pleasure of eating one, is a, is a turkey outside. It's a, it's a chicken stuffed in a duck stuffed in a turkey. It's a multi-layer foul feast. But that gives you a sense of the security blanketing this thing. And then the White House has random people running around Washington, D.C. with the thing stuffed in a Whole Foods grocery bag. What is the discrepancy between the way the CIA and the House are treating this information and the White House is treating this information? What does that chasm suggest to you about the fact about whether we're ever going to find this thing again? 
Well, I'm curious if we, in fact, we ever will find it. The fact that the intelligence community has been looking for it, it sounds like, for a couple of years, leads me to believe there's a strong chance we never will know what happens. But look, Alex, I think this shows just an utter lack of understanding and absolute contempt by the former administration towards the national security of the United States of America. Folks, your listeners need to understand how much time and energy and money that the U.S. intelligence community spends on a day-in, day-out basis to try and recruit sources of information, develop sources of information in places that are really hard to do that, like in Russia, like in China, like in Cuba, like in Iran. And to so cavalierly treat this information, I think Cassidy Hutchinson said that Mark Meadows at some point yelled at her saying, why is that in the safe? Why don't you just keep it in your desk? And she responded, Mark, this belongs in a skiff. That sort of behavior is absolutely problematic. And Alex, last thing, it's not just problematic because of the past damage it might have caused. Every single one of our allies, every single nation around the world is watching this as well. And they're trying to determine if Donald Trump is reelected to the United States, what, if anything, are they going to choose to share with the United States. So this is damaging the national security to the U.S., not just in the past, but going forward for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great point. I, I, I do wonder what the sort of potential penalty is for anyone involved in the disappearance of this binder, because the last person seen with it is Mark Meadows. And Cassidy off, uh, Hutchinson offered some, I, I would say, cold comfort. Um, this is quoting from her book. Uh, I believe this is quoting from her testimony to the January 6th committee. I just know Mr. Meadows. He wouldn't have had it copied unless he did it on its own, speaking of the information. But I don't think he knows how to use a copy machine. The fact that Mark Meadows doesn't know how to use a Xerox machine, I suppose, is some comfort that maybe this hasn't been distributed widely, but um, not enough for, for, I think, most most onlookers to this saga. What would be the penalty for anybody involved in this? I mean, what, given the gravity of, of the, the, the sort of breach, if you will. Well, I think it depends on the circumstances. I mean, part of the issue now is, you know, some folks are asking, well, why hasn't Mark Meadows' house been searched? To get to the point of establishing probable cause to get a search warrant, the government has to demonstrate uh, a probable cause that there is information currently at the place to be searched. So in this case, they would need something. It's not enough to say, well, Cassidy Hutchinson saw what she thought was the binder leaving with Mark Meadows. There would have to be somebody saying, you know, I was in his house last week and I saw this big binder and he showed me this class document. So it is a high hurdle to get to the point of being able to obtain a search warrant. But then certainly if somebody still had this information, you'd have to go through, you know, what did they know about what the material was in terms of its classification? Did they believe it had been declassified by Donald Trump? There are a lot of elements of the crime that would need to be established. But certainly if this was done with bad intent, I mean, these are the types of things, if it led to the loss of a human agent's life, you know, the espionage statute goes up to the death penalty. So again, that's an extreme case where somebody, you know, knowingly working for a foreign power and gave up this information. But the fact of the matter is, regardless of whether or not a law was broken, the U.S. intelligence community has to assume that this material was compromised. And everything they do with sensitive sources and methods, technical techniques, human sources, they have to treat all of that as if it's been compromised and adjust their operations. So it is not a stretch to say that potentially millions of dollars of damage have been done simply by the loss of this binder. And important human intelligence sources potentially compromised. Peter Strzok, thank you for putting it all into perspective for us tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, we have jaw-dropping reporting from the New York Times about how the Supreme Court 
came to overturn Roe v. Wade. One of the reporters on that story joins me next. Stay with us. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Demonstrators flocked to the Supreme Court shortly after Political broke the news Monday night, an unprecedented leak of an entire draft opinion in one of the court's most consequential cases, saying the landmark Roe v. Wade decision should be overruled. Still do not know, and we may never learn, who leaked the draft of the Dobbs decision, but it set in motion a seismic shift in American politics and American health care. In a new bombshell report from The New York Times, Jody Cantor and Adam Liptak describe how the court came to overturn Roe v. Wade. Joining me now is Adam Liptak, Supreme Court reporter for The New York Times, who is bylined on this impressive reporting on the behind-the-scenes deliberations of the Supreme Court. Adam, thank you so much for being here. Um, Let's just get right to it. There's so much in here. One of the first things that struck me is the way in which the court was not fully truthful about their decision to take up the Dobbs case in the first place. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so this is a puzzle on the outside as we looked at the court sitting on this case for months and months and months, maybe 10 months after it arrives at the court. And it turns out, and based on reporting Jody Kanner and I did inside the court, which is very difficult reporting, very secretive institution, that they had agreed to hear the case, but not told the public about it. And for a number of reasons, to put some distance between the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the arrival of Amy Coney Barrett and the ultimate decision, to avoid a compressed argument schedule, to follow, track some other cases. But in any event, a quite unusual thing that they do something that's ordinarily announced in public, don't announce it in order to kick it over to the next term so that they don't do away with Roe v. Wade just months after the death of the liberal icon and abortion protector, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, you mentioned that Amy Coney Barrett mentioned you report that Amy Coney Barrett initially was a yes on taking up Dobbs, but then at the last minute turns into a no vote. And it really sounds like it's about optics for her. It's not necessarily about some sort of judicial standard. It's about the fact that she doesn't want to be seen as rushing into her new post and throwing out Roe. Is that a fair assessment? So I'm not sure it's optics, because until we reported it, it wasn't known that she had decided not to vote in favor of taking the case. I think it may be a sign of authentic caution. But what's for sure 
is that the court agreed to hear the case with the bare minimum of four votes, all male conservatives, and every woman was on the other side. Um, you talk about the sort of engine behind taking up Dobbs, the person with the greatest zeal to overturn Roe v. Wade, and that's undoubtedly Sam Alito. Can you talk a little bit about how he, in the term, the term I think you guys use is he pre-gamed the Dobbs decision. Can you talk a little bit more about what that actually practically meant? Sure. Yeah. So Justice Alito has made it a lifelong project of his from his youth, really, to do away with uh, the right to abortion. And when he first officially circulates his draft opinion, moments later, <clears throat> 10 minutes later, Justice Neil Gorsuch joins. Then almost right away, uh, Amy Coney Barrett and uh, Clarence Thomas join. And a few days later, Brett Kavanaugh joins. And that's a powerful indication. It's like a 98-page decision that they didn't have time to read it and digest it right then that they had had an advanced look at the opinion. That's not unheard of. People occasionally pre-game, pre-circulate to their allies, draft opinions, but it's not routine. And it seemed to be part of a pattern of Justice Alito making this his project and guiding it through the court to get to the ultimate decision of doing away with Roe v. Wade. It also raises some questions about who exactly leaked the Dobbs decision to Politico, which was, as we talked about, a seismic moment in American politics. Justice Alito has reportedly had a history of leaking other big, controversial decisions, in some cases to curry favor with conservatives outside the court. Hobby Lobby is one of them. <clears throat> Should people be thinking about that as they think about who leaked the Dobbs decision and you're reporting in and around Alito's zeal to overturn Roe? I, I'm not going to accuse Justice Alito of being the leaker. He has said a couple things. He said he has a pretty good idea who it was. He hasn't disclosed who that is. Uh, presumably, he wasn't talking about himself. He also thinks that it couldn't have come from the right side of the court because he says that endangered the lives of the conservative justices because it isn't law, of course, until the actual decision is issued. And he points to the fact that someone did try to show up at uh, Brett Kavanaugh's house, uh, apparently with the aim of do doing him grave harm. Uh, so Justice Alito rules out Justice Alito. And we don't know the leaker. We don't know the motives of the leaker, but we know the effect of the leak. The effect of the leak was to lock in the five conservative votes and frustrate an attempt by, we report, not only Chief Justice Roberts, but a liberal justice, uh, Justice Stephen Breyer, to try to forge a compromise. And after the leak decision becomes much harder, the Chief Justice, having worked on a compromise position, a concurring opinion, uh, is wary of even sending it around on the court's electronic communication system because they don't know how it's been compromised. So what the leak did, whatever the motives of the leaker, the effect of the leak was to lock in the right side of the court into uh, overruling Roe. Adam Liptak of The New York Times. It's an incredible piece of reporting about a very secretive process. Thank you so much for everything you're doing here, reporting out. Thanks for your time tonight. Still ahead, the Supreme Court's decision to upend decades of precedent undergirding bedrock principles of American life didn't end with Dobbs. 
We'll talk with Slate's Mark Joseph Stern about how much more damage this court might do this term and beyond. That's next. Forty-nine percent of Americans say they have trust and confidence in the United States Supreme Court. When Bill Clinton was president, that number was 80 percent. The absolute nosedive in American confidence in this court pulled this year in September followed reports that Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito had routinely received lavish gifts and vacations from billionaire conservative activists and came at a time when the court itself ended federal protection for reproductive choice, ended the practice of race-conscious admissions decisions, and all but sanctioned discrimination against same-sex couples. This term, the court will make even more landmark decisions, including potentially whether to impose further restrictions on abortion access and whether the federal criminal case against Donald Trump can proceed. Joining me now is Mark Joseph Stern, senior writer covering the courts and the law for Slate magazine. Mark, thank you for joining me. I just first let me get your reaction to this New York Times reporting and what stood out to you as a court watcher as most egregious. Yeah, you know, we expect log rolling horse trading and deal making from politicians in the Senate cloakroom. But what we saw from the Supreme Court justices while deliberating this decision was something else entirely. This looked a lot like raw, cynical, partisan politicking of the basest sort. Uh, it was incredibly dishonest. The court concealed uh, its vote on this case from the public, as Adam pointed out moments ago. That is uh, almost unprecedented and suggest that this court did not trust the public uh, to learn the truth about its decision-making process because it had been so corrupted. Um, I think that's one of many details that jumped out as indications that, you know, this court is cloaked in scandal, is cloaked in distrust of the public, and is aggressively trying to change the law with a lot of arrogance and a very little caution toward how the public is going Going to receive it. Yeah, the arrogance, that's so, that's a, such an appropriate term here because even reporting on the court, as I'm sure you're well aware, is so challenging, right? There's like, there's almost no access to the behind the scenes deliberation when these nine unelected justices are making decisions with a massive impact for American society. Do you see, I mean, the, 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 sort of the subtext of this piece is sort of questions whether these judges should have the power they do and the lifetime appointments they do. The bedside vigil of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is but one of many examples about how questionable these sort of this arrangement is. Do you think we're at a, a, an inflection point here? Well, so long as the court kept roughly in tune with public opinion, then people weren't asking those questions. Uh, what's happened now is that the court has, of course, lurched to the right, far away from the median voter, and people are wondering, maybe for the first time in their lives, why do we allow these nine unelected politicians in robes to have the final say over essentially every major political and legal question of our time, especially when they're appointed in such a random fashion? I mean, every other country thinks we're crazy for allowing the vagaries of mortality to decide which way the court will lean. Um, I, I will say, you know, Congress has shown some interest in starting to increase regulation of the court with Republicans blockading all of those bills. It's not going to go anywhere soon. But this is the kind of thing that Congress could theoretically uh, try to put a stop to. The secrecy behind the scenes, the secrecy of these votes on taking up cases, a lot of 
legal ethics professors have said Congress should make that stop. Congress should require those votes to be public. Congress should force the justices to reveal what's going on behind the scenes because that's the bare minimum they can do to be transparent with this power that they wield. But of course, this court has shown no interest in doing so. Well, and as an example of that, the Mississippi Solicitor General who argues Dobbs in front of the courts is a former Thomas Law clerk. The month he filed the Dobbs case, he goes to a reunion dinner with Thomas. I mean, that's like maybe grounds for recusal in any other universe. Well, and it's not just that. It's that he first filed the case solely as a as an attempt to move the goalpost to 15 weeks to say, OK, well, we can start banning abortion at 15 weeks. He goes to this West Virginia resort with Clarence and Ginny Thomas. He goes back to Mississippi and he says, I've changed my mind. Now we should ask the court to overturn Roe v. Wade entirely and not bother with 15 weeks. What happened in the interim? Well, we obviously don't know. Maybe Adam will do some more reporting on that. But I think the perception is very obviously that something very sleazy went on behind the scenes. And given the justice's history of unscrupulous behavior, it's reasonable to draw those conclusions. Mark Joseph Stern, thank you as always for your time and analysis, sir. I appreciate it. That is our show for tonight. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.